The theme of this continuing education series is the integration of clinical research into oncology practice, and I met with two key leaders in the field for an update on some of the critical ongoing trials in breast cancer. Dr. Charles Geyer is Director of Medical Affairs for the National Surgical Adjuvant Breast and Bowel Project, or NSABP, and Dr. John Mackey is Executive Director of the Cancer International Research Group, or CIRG. To begin, Dr. Geyer commented on a critical NSABP study, trial B42, which is attempting to determine if extending therapy with aromatase inhibitors beyond five years provides additional treatment benefit in postmenopausal women. Dr. Geyer began by commenting on a previous Canadian study, MA17, which utilized an aromatase inhibitor in postmenopausal women who had previously received five years of tamoxifen, and how the positive results of this study led to the B42 trial. B42 is a study that is continuing to address the evolving question about duration of hormonal therapy for hormone receptor-positive breast cancer. MA17 was a very important study because it showed that treating beyond five years up to that time had kind of been the maximum time for hormonal therapy by changing to an aromatase inhibitor clearly provided benefit. And there's been recognized data for a long time that a substantial number of women who have recurrence of ER-positive breast cancer do it after the first five years. And so we need to optimize our long-term therapy for these women. We know from several studies that starting out with an aromatase inhibitor in postmenopausal women produces better outcomes than starting out with tamoxifen, and there are many physicians who routinely employ that as their first choice, but those studies basically looked at five years of therapy. So at the present time, the only information we have with an aromatase inhibitor is five years. So this is a study that basically is recruiting women who have had predominantly aromatase-based inhibitor therapy in the first five years, who fortunately are free of cancer, and randomize them to either stop therapy in the form of a placebo or to continue with an aromatase inhibitor. And in our trial, it's letrozole. And, John, you know, there's been a lot more sensitivity now over the last few years about this issue that Chuck just mentioned about delayed relapse after five years. It's really been eye-opening in terms of how common that is, specifically in patients with ER-positive tumors. Can you talk a little bit about what we know about that and how often it happens? Well, sure. Well, we know that women, uh, approximately 60% of younger women and perhaps even over 70% of women in the postmenopausal age have hormone receptor positive breast cancer. So, you know, for our working purposes, that would mean that they have either estrogen receptors and or the progesterone receptor in the tumors. And for these women, of course, we often give them what we call adjuvant hormonal therapy to prevent relapse. We've learned from long and sad experience that for ER-positive women, it can be 10 and 15 and 20 years after their initial diagnosis, after the surgical resection of the tumor, and long after they've finished their usual short course of adjuvant hormonal therapy. It used to be five years of tamoxifen was the standard. And these women can have a relapse. And oftentimes, it's not just a new breast cancer on the other side, but rather a recurrence of their initial breast cancer in some other part of the body. So they develop distant metastases, even years after the fact. It can be fatal at that point. And what about an ER-negative breast cancer? 
cancer, you see the same thing? Well, with ER-negative breast cancer, we are seeing a bit of a different picture where the initial risk of the breast cancer coming back might peak at around two years and then go down quite dramatically to a sort of a baseline risk that might be around 1% per year. What we see with ER-positive breast cancer is that the initial peak in relapse, the annual risk of it coming back again is highest around five years, and it never drops really down to that level of 1% per year. It's actually probably hovering around 2 2.5% per year over the long term. So basically, it's kind of a situation where if you have ER-positive breast cancer, over the short term, that's good news, but over the long term, you're still not out of the woods even 10 and 15 years down the road. Chuck, what about the issue of risks and safety considerations of using an endocrine therapy, for example, on a aromatase over more than five years. What do we know about the risks that occur with five years of therapy, and what are some of the concerns about you know going beyond that? One of the, I think, advantage of our dilemma with our endocrine therapies is that it actually is a good thing to have several classes of drugs with different mechanisms of action that provide benefits because typically medicines with different mechanisms of action will have different side effect profiles. And we certainly see that with tamoxifen and the aromatase inhibitors. Everyone, I think, is pretty familiar with tamoxifen, and the aromatase inhibitors address some of those concerns. The endometrial problems, the thromboembolic problems seem to be largely, if not eliminated, substantially reduced down to the sort of expected baseline rate with the aromatase inhibitor. Unfortunately, there are some additional things that are brought into the equation with the aromatase inhibitors. Clearly, the one that gets probably the greatest deal of attention is the accelerated loss of bone density, and there's been a lot of work looking at ways to deal with that. I think in terms of volume of studies, the bisphosphonates have clearly received a great deal of interest. There was an interesting poster from Carol Fabian at San Antonio where they were looking at vitamin D levels of women who were going to go on an aromatase inhibitor. And you see these, I've seen other reports like this, but they were finding like three quarters of these, I had 75 patients, about three quarters of them were vitamin D deficient. And as they were monitoring their vitamin D levels to make sure they were corrected, and they found that patients who were corrected were experiencing progressively less of another problem that we see, the arthralgia myalgia. And those that were having arthralgia myalgia, many of them didn't have their vitamin D correct, so they pushed it higher, which, I mean, that would really be nice. To me, that would really change the aromatase inhibitor equation if you could address the bone loss and the arthralgia myalgia with something as simple as vitamin D replication. That would be an important element. But be that as it may, you know, we clearly are able to address stabilization of the bone density as assessed by bone densitometry. The trials do show that you pick up a higher fracture rate, a couple percentage points while patients are on medication, but it's something that with intervention hopefully can be manageable. John, what about the issue of whether to keep an aromatase inhibitor going at five years outside of a protocol setting? So one of the options a woman has who's facing this situation would be to actually go in a trial like B42, and there's another one like that also. This is an extension of the other Canadian trial, the MA17 trial, but the same basic concept, continue or stop woman may not be eligible for the study or she may not want to be involved with the study. How do docs approach this decision off protocol? 
Well, I guess the first thing is that these are important trials and well-designed trials. So if a woman is eligible for B42 or the MA17 extension trial, then certainly you know, move heaven and earth to make it happen. But we're faced with these women who are now having completed five years of off-trial aromatase inhibitor therapy, and we're all scratching our heads as to what to do. When we look at the curves of how you know, ER positive breast cancer behaves, these women aren't out of the woods. There's a very real chance in the future that the breast cancer will come back. And, you know, we've sort of now had the first inkling that more is better from a trial that was done with tamoxifen. We had had some questions before because there'd been a well-conducted trial from the NSABP showing that, you know, even though the experience had been one was better than no years of tamoxifen and two was better than one and five was better than two, for some reason 10 was not as good as five. So we were scratching our heads with that. But another trial that was just recently reported at San Antonio was showing that approximately 10 years of tamoxifen is probably better than five. So at the end of the day, we're starting to think that maybe these women should be on an aromatase inhibitor or a hormonal therapy of some type for as long as they can safely tolerate it. Well, so, for example, a woman comes in, she's been on an aromatase inhibitor for five years. She's not one of these women having problems with, you know, arthralgias. She feels fine. Her bones are fine. How do you decide whether to continue it or not? What are the factors you might consider? Well, first of all, I think the big issue and the one problem we know about is bone health. So certainly I'd like to see that she was on vitamin D supplementation, that she was taking her 1,500 milligrams of elemental calcium per day. And certainly exercise is a good thing for everyone and certainly this population as well. So, you know, if we're comfortable that her bone density is not going to be a major problem and that she won't be experiencing fractures, well, then the rest is largely theoretical concerns rather than proven safety problems. The theoretical concerns might be that there may be a slight increase in cardiovascular disease. There's a hint that maybe these drugs have a slightly adverse effect on lipids, but that effect is very mild when it is seen at all, and it's not clear that these women have more heart attacks or Does strokes. Does that mean you pretty well continue most people if they're doing okay on treatment, or do you kind of differentially decide whether to do it or not? Well, because we don't have evidence for this, in my own practice, I'm stopping them after five years and saying, you know, I'm sorry, there's good reasons to think that maybe longer would be better, but we don't have the data either for the efficacy or the safety, so our default position is generally just not to do it. How about you, Chuck? How do you approach this situation if the woman can't go in a study? Well, as a participant in B42, you can't participate in the trial if you believe that they really should continue. And so for me, the standard is to stop. Now, people then immediately will start saying, well, what about the 12 positive node patients? So the worse the prognosis in the beginning, the more likely a delayed relapse is? Presumably higher risk. And so, you know, those are the patients who have a lot of anxiety. So I would never make the statement that never or always. I think that's too extreme. The concern I have about where we seem to be headed with the longer is better in any woman who has hormone receptor positive breast cancer is I guess my hope would be that there is, like we're seeing with chemotherapy, there might be some heterogeneity amongst women with hormone receptor positive breast cancers. And for instance, is a woman who has uh, weekly positive ER, but who's HER2 positive and gets Herceptin, does she really need to take indefinite therapy? I mean, these are things that unless we can get women into trials, get their tissues submitted so we can do the correlative work and try and tease it out, we're just going to be locked into the one-size-fits-all 
for a very large portion of the breast cancer population. I want to ask you both about another major study that's out there, and not only an important study, but also kind of tells us a little bit about where we're at in a really important problem, which is the adjuvant therapy of women who have HER2-positive tumors. And I'm talking about the BETH trial, B-E-T-H. They're really your two groups are putting together as a cooperative group, the CRG and the NSABP. So I want to talk a little bit about what that study is going to look at. But first, John, can you just kind of background us on where we are in terms of findings of trials right now of adjuvant trastuzumab? Okay, well, we've known ever since early 2005 that giving a year's worth of trastuzumab or Herceptin to women with the HER2 alteration remarkably improves their prognosis. Overall, the benefit is a 40 to 50% relative reduction in the risk of recurrence. That means nearly half the relapses are prevented while these women are being followed on the trials. And we now have follow-up that's you know on the order of two to four years in most of these trials. Uh, we also know that overall it looks like about one-third of the deaths are prevented as well. So in terms of breast cancer clinical trials, this is a home run. It's a major, major step forward. And as a result, since early 2005, virtually all over the world, people have been offered one year of Herceptin. There's a couple of different ways to give it. The NSBP pioneered giving the chemotherapy together with the Herceptin, and the regimen they used was four cycles of adriamycin and cytoxin, followed by four cycles of taxol. And during the taxol was when they introduced the Herceptin, and they got a very you know, major, very robust effect from that. Their analysis was combined with the NCCTG trial, which was a very similar design with weekly paclitaxel, but the details aren't so important as the combined analysis showed a very major effect. There was a European-led group who did a trial called HERA, where they took women who had finished all of their chemotherapy and then randomized them to what they've reported on as a year of Herceptin versus no Herceptin. And clearly that year of Herceptin, even given after chemotherapy, also had that reduction in the risk of recurrence of over 40% and a survival advantage as well. So another home run. So, you know, on this background, one of the last trials to report was actually the BCIRG006. Our data came in a few months later than everyone else's. It took a bit of a different approach. One of the concerns with all of the Herceptin adjuvant trials was that in the metastatic setting, we were seeing, to our surprise, heart failure develop in the women who were getting Herceptin. So one of the approaches that was taken in the BCIRG006 trial was to use sort of a novel concoction that was cooked up in the lab called TCH. The T is for docetaxel, the C is for carboplatinum, and the H, of course, is Herceptin or trastuzumab. So using these three drugs, TCH, and comparing them to what had been our standard on that trial, which was like the NSBP, four cycles of anthracycline and four cycles of taxane, we saw that you know this TCH regimen gave us basically quite an improvement in disease-free survival and overall survival advantage, but also it did it without actually increasing the risk of heart damage, whereas with some of the other trials, we were seeing rates of heart damage around 3 or 4% of women actually getting congestive heart failure. In our trial, it was a half a percent approximately. The perspective that I have on the adjuvant trials really that our trial, the B31 study, the HERA trial, the North Central trial, design-wise to me, I view those as first-generation studies where really the only goal of those trials was to determine if adding Herceptin to chemotherapy would improve outcome. 
and they did, as John has said, to a remarkable degree. I think the unique thing about CIRG 006 was it really, to me, was kind of a second-generation study. It had a first-generation arm in it, but the TCH arm was really second-generation, trying to more or less assuming that Herceptin would provide benefit, but that the original standard regimens could be problematic. And I think it's proven to be a very, very important study because in my mind, it has moved us past just the simple, does it add yes or no? Now we have, yes, it adds, and it adds in a number of different ways. And we have a safe, what I think is a safer regimen to move forward with. Let's talk a little bit about the Beth study, which is one of two major international trials looking at what the next step is in these patients. Because, John, there are still people who are having cancer relapse in spite of getting trastuzumab. Incidentally, what do we know about those patients and those types of tumors in terms of why they relapse in spite of trastuzumab, whereas other people don't? Well, it's a really good question. We'd like to be able to say that we could take a woman's tumor and analyze it in some fashion to tell us which patients are getting you know, the most benefit from adjuvant Herceptin and which patients are not getting that benefit from adjuvant Herceptin and still are relapsing. But thus far, we haven't found a good laboratory-based test that's really able to tease those women out. We have been working quite carefully in our laboratories in the BCIRG looking at some of the markers that might be related to resistance to trastuzumab. And actually, we're submitting a paper very soon about the value of a marker called beta-1 integrin and its relationship to trastuzumab resistance. And in my mind, looking at all the data thus far, it's probably one of the stronger markers of trastuzumab resistance. But we shared that at San Antonio. At present, though, it's not published. It's just in abstract form. Now, the BETH trial is going to look at bevacizumab adding on to chemotherapy and trastuzumab. What's the thinking behind wanting to look at BEV? Well, bevacizumab, or Avastin, is an antibody that basically mops up. It's like a molecular sponge, and it mops up the vascular endothelial growth factor that's in a woman's body. And vascular endothelial growth factor is a little snippet of protein. It's a little peptide that actually asks, basically is a signal for new blood vessels to grow. And it turns out that many breast cancers give off vascular endothelial growth factor, recruit blood vessels into the tumor, and it lets the tumors grow up and to become, you know, aggressive, nasty, lethal cancers. The interesting thing that really makes the Beth trial, what I think, an excellent example of translational research is that we've got good reasons to think that the combination of bevacizumab and trastuzumab, so using these two antibodies together, should really be a very effective combination. First of all, we know that if you take a HER2 normal breast cancer cell in a Petri dish and add in the HER2 gene, that all of a sudden that cell starts producing VEGF. And that VEGF, when you put it into an animal, recruits all sorts of blood vessels to it and makes that a much more aggressive cancer. We know in women who have been participating in clinical trials that if you look at their tumors, and if their tumors make VEGF, they have a worse prognosis, more likely to have a relapse, more likely to have a death, than if they're not making VEGF. And it just so happens that women who have HER2-positive breast cancers are much more likely to be making this VEGF when we look at their clinical samples in early-stage breast cancer. So that's all a reason why we should be combining these two treatments, one against HER2 and one against the blood vessel growth signals. And in fact, that led to a trial called Tori B03, which was launched out of the UCLA network with Mark Pegram and Dennis Lehman. 
and they've looked at about 50 women who've had recurrent breast cancer, so advanced metastatic HER2-positive breast cancer, and they've given them a combination of Herceptin and Avastin, so the combination of the two antibodies. And remarkably, they found even without the addition of chemotherapy, shrinkage rates, response rates of well over 50%, and about 82% of the women, when you follow them out to six months, had no growth of their cancer. So we had that, we call that clinical benefit. The cancer hasn't started to grow yet. So we're thinking that these two antibodies are working in quite a surprisingly effective way in advanced cancer. The one concern, of course, is we know that Herceptin causes heart damage. From these early trials that were done in advanced cancer, we're seeing some women getting you know, congestive heart failure as well. So we're wanting to make sure that when we use it in early stage disease, that we'll be very careful about looking at heart issues. Chuck, could you just briefly comment on the other major clinical trial out there looking at this, again, the second generation of trials like in the HER2-positive situation, the ALTO trial? Sure. The importance of Herceptin is that in ways we don't completely understand, it shuts down the abnormal activity that is produced by having large amounts of HER2 protein expressed in a cell. And it does that by binding to the part of the receptor that sticks out of the cell, the external part. It's actually the internal part of the cell that communicates with other proteins and actually produces the waterfall effect or cascade of activating signals that ultimately cause the activity. And there are a number of resistant mechanisms to trastuzumab that have certainly been worked out well in the lab, but they're still being evaluated. John had mentioned different trying to understand in patients what are important resistant mechanisms, but they clearly exist because some patients don't respond at all to Herceptin for metastatic disease. We have the patients who fail adjuvant therapy. And there is another drug that has been developed and approved for treating women with HER2-positive breast cancer called lapatinib that basically binds to the intracellular portion, so it shuts it down in a completely different way. And so there is another large international trial being conducted. Basically, the idea that Herceptin has brought us to a point, a substantially better point, but we need to do better still. And so the ALTO trial is basically looking at how lapatinib might be used to improve outcomes. It's a four-arm trial where the control arm gets standard Herceptin, one arm, patients will only receive the lapatinib. They won't get the standard Herceptin. Another arm will give the combination of the two because there has been preclinical work and early clinical work as well showing that there does seem to be a synergy between the two. And this isn't the whole excitement, broad excitement in medical oncology now is the idea of so-called targeted therapy, understand what mechanisms that are normally controlled in the cell that have gotten out of control that we can shut down. And we know that resistance happens because there are a number of these pathways that are in parallel and when you inhibit one, these are living cells and they're plastic so they can activate parallel tracks and things or they can bypass your block on one pathway. And so what this trial with lapatinib basically is focusing on is hitting the HER2 pathway, two different points, different mechanisms of action. Beth is taking another approach of sort of trying to cut off that alternate pathway. So they're both important ways of trying to deal with the limitations of the Herceptin therapy, just taking different tacks. 
John, what about safety issues in this trial? Of course, we're always concerned in adjuvant studies because some of these women would be cured even without treatment or with more conventional treatment like trastuzumab. What are some of the safety issues in the ALTO trial? Well, in the ALTO trial, I think one of the safety issues that's got to be addressed is the fact that you know trastuzumab will cause a few percent of women to develop congestive heart failure. And it's possible as well that lapatinib might augment that to a higher than baseline rate. At the end of the day, though, our experience with lapatinib has actually been quite positive when it comes to cardiotoxicity, and it's not clear to me that, in fact, we're going to run into problems with the combination. I think that the trial's being run in a clean fashion, and we're going to have very careful looks at cardiotoxicity in the ALTO trial as it goes on, so if there is an issue, it'll be discovered early. What about side effects, and again, comparing trastuzumab to lapatinib? Well... Lapatinib is not quite as clean a drug as trastuzumab in the sense that it has more than one target in the body. Trastuzumab just targets HER2, but there is a protein on many of our body's tissues which is known as HER1 or also the epidermal growth factor receptor. They're the same thing. And so whereas trastuzumab will target HER2, lapatinib will target HER1 and HER2. And it turns out that this HER1 protein is also seen on the mucosa of the gut, and it's also seen in our skin cells. And so women on lapatinib also can develop rashes, and they can get an acneiform rash, sort of like they can go back to puberty for a short time. And that's usually treatable. It's not usually a serious thing, but occasionally it's a problem and can lead to dose reduction of the drug, or sometimes you've been having to stop it. Similarly, people on lapatinib also have a higher risk of getting diarrhea, usually not a major problem, usually low grade if it occurs, but it can be a hassle. One other study I wanted to ask you all about, I think is really a critical study going on out there, which is a Taylor X study. Chuck, can you talk about what that's looking at? The Taylor study is basically trying to give us some information that we need to really be able to optimally utilize a new test, the Oncotype DX recurrence score assay. This test was something that the NSABP was fortunate to work with, the company that has a trial available. And basically what it does is the test is run on women who have hormone receptor positive breast cancer, node negative primarily, though there's been some recent studies that have looked at it in women with node positive disease, and its role will probably expand, but the Taylor X focuses on the node negative patient. Because the data from our studies basically identified about a quarter of patients with ER-positive node-negative patients seem to derive the bulk of the benefit from getting chemotherapy. Years ago, before we had Taylor-X, trials were set up that compared hormonal therapy alone with hormonal therapy plus chemotherapy, and it provided an absolute benefit of about 4%. And the question that oncologists struggled with was, well, does that mean each woman enjoys that 4% bump, or are there women who don't really get anything but side effects and other women that it matters quite a bit to them? And the recurrent score assay basically said, fortunately, it was the latter. Now that we know it, I think it's something we can take care of. We know that what we were seeing was a lot of benefit in a small group of women. So What we know is we can identify the women who clearly derive benefit that make up a quarter. We've got another group of about 35-40% who clearly don't benefit, but in between there's some uncertainty where there could still be that 
three, two, three, four percent. So the Taylor X trial is basically taking women who have that intermediate kind of score where we don't know what the true impact of the chemotherapy is, and it's asking them to be willing to be randomized to chemotherapy, hormone therapy versus hormone therapy alone. And the study is actually accruing quite well. There's a lot of investigator interest, and patients have been interested in it. So we've been very pleased at the accrual. You know, it's interesting, John. This clinical trial, as Chuck is alluding to, actually puts a patient in a challenging, and the doctor in a challenging situation, in that basically it's the computer flip of a coin, chemo or not. Pretty big difference. What happens when you sit down and talk to a patient about that kind of randomization? Mm-hmm. Well, I think that it's a bit of a humbling experience for an oncologist to have to actually take a step back and realize that for any of these clinical trials, and especially dramatic ones like the Taylor X, where you know these big life-altering decisions, chemotherapy or not, the first thing you have to do is admit to the woman in front of you that you really don't know whether they need chemotherapy or not, and that it's an open research question. And after that point, usually the discussions go very well. You explain, you know, if you were to take chemotherapy, I'd recommend this particular flavor. This is how it's given. This is what the side effects are going to be. If, in fact, you're not going to go with chemotherapy, then we just use hormonal therapy, and this is how it would go, and these would be the side effects. And then you say, well, this is up to you. I mean, it's an open question. I'm willing to treat you either way or else I wouldn't have considered this trial for you. If you want to be part of the trial, it may not directly help you, but it's going to help us in a few years' time know what to do with the next person that comes in the door. We'll be able to give them an informed choice. In terms of the non-protocol use of this test, the Oncotype, Chuck, what are the kinds of patients, as you mentioned right now, it's no negative ER positive, but within that subset, what are the situations where the Oncotype is most helpful? For me, the grading of ER positive breast cancer clearly is an important aspect. Everybody knows it is. It's important in groups, but we just have not, our pathology colleagues have not been able to consistently develop reproducible methods of assigning grade unless the grade is unused. And grade just relates to, it's the pathologist gestalt looking at the cell. Is it slow growing, fast growing, or somewhere in between? And there does tend to be pretty good agreement on the ends, but unfortunately most patients are in the middle. They're grade two, or one calls it two, one calls it three. And I think those are the patients that I find the oncotype to be particularly helpful. With grade three tumors, you know, most of the time they're going to have higher scores. And when they don't, I personally have some discomfort with that. I don't know what what to make of that. Grade is really related to how rapidly the tumor is growing? That's our assumption. That's the way it behaves. High-grade tumors tend to recur quicker and they seemingly respond better. So I don't think, and there really has been a consensus, I think, that has evolved amongst breast oncologists that it is not a test that needs to be run on everybody. It's a test that should be run selectively when it will help make a decision on the chemotherapy issue, yes or no. And so that tends to be sort of the average size tumors one to three centimeters, grade two tumors, those sort of situations where it can be helpful.